We're doing relationships. Broadly speaking, we're made for a multiple, uh, for a multiplicity of relationships. That's kind of what we said last week. Friendship, um, employer-employee relationship, parental relationship, parent, um, brother-sister relationship, relationships with authority, relationships with divinity, um, but also romance, companionship. Uh, dating and sexuality, and that's what we're going to spend a lot of our time this quarter, but not all of our time, talking about. And what we said last week is, we said that we were made for relationships, um, and the Bible has a lot to say about one of the richest relationships, and that is of romantic companionship. Um, And into this conversation, we're going to inject a biblical uh, conversation or discussion about the place of sex in our lives and in the conversation about love and relationships and romance and dating and i know everybody comes in here from a different place and you might be thinking um all kinds of different places and i want to i want to demonstrate that like i know there's a multiplicity of views here that some of you walk in here and you're thinking um all right i i got a good idea and you're probably right about what you're going to say about what the Bible says about sex you're probably right in, in what you suspect and what you're thinking is as you approach this, okay, prove to me that this is really true. Because I think that the Bible's sexual ethics are outdated, they're too conservative, it, it goes against what my instincts tell me, um, and it's not what I want to do. And so your posture is, will prove this kind of outmoded sexual ethic. That's okay. You can come in here that way, you can stay in here that way. You're always allowed to disagree. Uh, some of you might be coming in, you might be coming in thinking, help me. Not, not so much prove it to me, but help me. Uh, maybe you're warm to, maybe you're even convinced of the biblical sexual ethic, and you won't help uh, for different reasons. Maybe because you're in a relationship or you're not, because you're in addiction or whatever it is. Um, and then maybe some people are coming in here, and maybe this isn't the word you would choose, but you feel this instinct, redeem this for me. Um, maybe loneliness or, or maybe even abuse has made sex something very painful or dirty to you that you don't know how to relate to anymore and you kind of even hate yourself for wanting it um, and there's pain and, and maybe even numbness associated with it and you're wondering can I ever really enjoy this again or is this just a necessary evil in my life and so your instinct maybe you never put this word to it but you're feeling Lord willing what I hope you're willing to consider is hey can this be redeemed for me could I enjoy this again So with that in mind, we're going to read some passages from Paul's letter to the church at Corinth, which had a lot of, um, just a lot of issues about sexuality that he had to deal with as uh, as one of their um, kind of pastors. So here's what he says in 1 Corinthians 6, and we're certainly going to draw from the rest of Scripture as well. 1 Corinthians 6, 12 through 20. And he's quoting the Corinthians here when he says, All things are lawful for me. He's saying, Y'all say all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. You say all things are lawful for me, but you don't need to be dominated by anything. You say things, he's also quoting them, Food is meant for stomach and the stomach for food. But God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and also raised us up by His power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. So flee sexual immorality. Every other sin commits a person commits is outside the body, but the sexual and moral person sins against his own body. 
Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. This conversation about sexuality goes on, but I just want to read a couple more verses um, in, the, in the following paragraph. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body. The husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by an agreement, for a limited time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the Word of God stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your Word, and we pray that you would soften our hearts to consider things that sound outdated and outmoded and unattractive, dear God. And I pray that as we consider all of Scripture, as we consider your design for creation, that we would see something that's not restrictive and annoying, dear God, but you would paint a bigger picture for us and that it would touch our hearts and we'd find our imaginations um, exploding with hope, dear God. So be with us, Holy Spirit. We need you to attend to our hearts whenever we open your word. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, so we're talking about sex, and I know it's something that y'all rarely think about. It seems like, why are we even talking about this? It hardly ever comes up in culture. It's never alluded to in, like, art or music or any kind of media or anything like that. You can't find reference to it anywhere. There aren't phallic symbols and the architecture on campus or anything like that. Um, But we're going to talk about it regardless, even though... You know, it's never really an issue. And to start, what I wanted to start is just kind of by acknowledging what are the cultural scripts or narratives that were kind of handed about um, sexuality. And and when I say culture, I just mean us, just people together. Um, That there are these narratives or these sentiments or these lessons or what I like to call scripts of like, oh, this is how you're supposed to think about or engage in these things. And we just kind of want to begin our discussion by acknowledging those and talking about them and and maybe how they're both uh, a little bit right but also a lot incomplete. Um, And the first one is, well, sex is just this biological thing, right? We distance it from everything else, uh, all other claims, and we say, listen, it's a biological process, you know? We're animals that are seeking a physical catharsis. And, and we've just way overthought it. We've way overexamined it. We've made too much of it. It's really nothing. It's just sterile. It's, this, it's just this clinical thing that happens, right? But the problem is, every other way we talk about sexuality betrays that. Because if you look at anything else that actually is purely bio, biological, it has nothing in common with sexuality. Here's what I mean. Squash is biological, When you play squash with someone, guess what you do? You go and play squash, and you have a lot of fun, and you walk away. There's no confusion. There aren't expectations. You don't wonder, when should I text next? When's too early? When's too late? You play squash. You enjoy that physical activity, that biological activity with someone, and you walk away. And that's okay, and it's great, and it's fun. Right? That happens with racquetball. That happens with disc golf. That happens maybe even with eating, right? But all of a sudden, we want to say sex is merely biological, Right? But you can't walk away from sex the same way you walk away from all those other things. Right? There are all these expectations, these hopes, these thoughts, these demands, these complications. Um, and, uh, and what that's revealing to us is that sex is not merely biological. 
that it is tapping into something deeper in our personhood than simply our biology. Secondly, there's this notion that, well, sexual ethics is a private realm. Uh, Sexuality is private, it's personal, it's not... It's not to be thrown out in public. Um, I don't need to tell other people what to do with their sexuality. Other people don't need to tell me what to do with our sexuality. Uh, I I read a book uh, recently called Premarital Sex in America. Two researchers studied um, just the effects and the views on sex outside of marriage in America. It's published by Oxford University Press. It's a very academic engagement. This is not a Christian book. And they said 90% of 18 to 23-year-olds say they agree with this statement. I should not judge anyone's sexual conduct, conduct except my own, right? It's no one else's business. We want to say it's merely personal or private, and it has nothing to do with anyone else, even the partners that we have, right? And I don't know if I fully recommend the HBO show, Girls, but I suspect some of y'all have seen it, and that show demonstrates what most good television demonstrates when it addresses the issue of sexuality, which is it's never merely private, but we're always trying to convince ourselves it is. What's happening in that show is this. These girls, these kind of post-college girls, go to Manhattan, or go to Brooklyn, as it were, and they try to live this sexually liberated life, and they're always trying to tell themselves that when they're with these men that afterwards there are no more obligations or expectations. We are liberated from the idea that when I'm with these guys afterwards, I don't have to have them. And, of course, what the show is about is about how that's a lie and about how these women or these girls are finding themselves knit to these guys with these expectations and these guys are frustrated, right? What that's revealing is it's not personal. It's not private, it's very much relational. It has impact out in society. And if that doesn't prove it to you, then if nothing else, sex creates new people. It is actually the very thing that creates society. It is not private. People don't exist without sex. Okay? Therefore, it is appropriate to have public conversations about it because it is the most, maybe the most fundamental public thing we do, right? Because it makes the public be in existence, okay? And actually, Paul's addressing both of these concerns in here, that it's biological or it's personal. Because what he's doing in this letter, he starts off by saying, he's quoting them, you're saying all things are lawful for me. Not all things are helpful, but you say all things are lawful for me. What he's saying is, y'all are saying, listen, this is just my private concern. This is personal. For me, this is lawful. He's addressing the Corinthian church in the same regard. And then they also say, the food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. The Corinthian church is also saying, Paul, this is just the biological thing. It's just like stomach and food. It's just a biological process. Stop overthinking this. And his response is verse 13. No, it's not just your private concern. It is not just biological because God made all of creation, including yourself, which means that you are not your own, that you have purpose, and that purpose is authored by God, and therefore it is not simply your personal private concern, nor is it simply biological activity. The other narrative or script that sometimes out there as well is that sex is dirty or sex is negative, or sex is bad. And maybe that's even what you expect to hear in a setting like this. Maybe it's what you've heard in conservative religious settings um, growing up. Uh, It's only ever been denigrated. Um, 
but it's not also, it doesn't just come from that. That kind of narrative doesn't come from that. Uh, if you've been the victim of abuse, it's really hard to believe that sex can be beautiful. It also conditions you to begin to hate sexuality, even if it's something you can't deny about yourself. You can despise it within yourself. So there are a lot of different ways that we can kind of receive that narrative that sex is dirty. And this is what I want to do tonight. And this is not a rhetorical trick. This is really the fundamental view about sexuality that Scripture has that we have to recapture that I think there's healing when we recapture. I want us to see sex in the context for which it was created to challenge our sensibilities and our thoughts and ask you to consider what the Bible says. Um, And the point really is this. Our problem is we settle for bad sex. The problem is not that we like it too much. The problem is actually we like it too little. God loves sexuality. He actually loves sex. His purpose is for us to delight in it and for it to be amazing. The goal of, I, I hope, that the seeds of, uh, of truth that get sown from Scripture in our hearts tonight leads you to have amazing sex. That's actually my goal. That's actually the purpose. And the reason that we're so frustrated is not because we like it too much and the Bible is against sex. It's because we like it too little and the Bible is way for sex. That really is the problem. Because the things that we, we don't care much for become mundane and repetitive and unfeeling, right? The things we carry much, we, we give much care to and concern to, we actually go to great lengths to enjoy them well. In some ways, what, this is what I hope happens is, I hope y'all see, this, this is a funny analogy, but, but it works, that y'all have been drinking Starbucks this whole time, and you need to try some fills. <laughs> I used to love Starbucks. I used to think Starbucks was life-giving, right? It was amazing. Like, getting a Starbucks gift card was, was a form... It was a love language for me and everything. And then, actually, Victoria told me about Phil's the very first time. And I went to Phil's, and daily, Elizabeth and I complain about Starbucks and are sad for the people that still go there and think they're enjoying good coffee. Starbucks... I, in some ways, it's a little bit of warning. If you go to Phil's, you'll never be satisfied again with coffee anywhere else. It's amazing. What I hope, hope happens is that y'all see that the way we think about sexuality outside of Scripture is actually like drinking bad coffee. And once you've had great coffee, you can't go back to the bad stuff. Once you understand sexuality is the way God intended it, you'll realize, I don't want bad sex. That's what I actually hope happens is that actually your imagination gets fired up. And you start thinking, I don't want mediocre sex. I don't want to engage in it in a poor way. C.S. Lewis makes this point. He just says, the problem is not that our desires are too strong. It's that our desires are too weak. I hope we come out of this conversation with a richer and higher regard for sex. My goal is for you to have amazing sex. Binding, nourishing, rich, life-giving, sustaining sex. Jesus' goal for you when you encounter sexuality in Scripture is for you to have incredible sex. That's really the purpose. Not simply the physical pleasure of it. And that, again, is one of the ways we're very small-minded and narrow thinking about it, that it's simply about physical pleasure. But, but sex blesses community. It blesses us emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, physically. It blesses our families. I hope that your imagination gets fired up about sexuality. That's really the purpose for tonight. 
And so in order to do that, the first thing we have to say is we're going to have to give the biblical sexual ethic. And that's the first point. And and Paul gives it in this passage, the the body is not meant for sexual immorality. Now, from there, we're going to kind of draw together the rest of the Bible's teaching on sexual immorality. The word there he uses is porneia. It's the word that's used all over the New Testament for sexual immorality. That word is used in other places to mean it's translated as fornication or prostitution. It's also used to refer to incest. It's equated to adultery, which is sex with someone that you're not married to. And it's also even equated to lust in Matthew 5. Simply um, the coveting or the greediness for sex. It's used widespread for sexual sin in the Bible. And the question then is, what then does it mean? And here's our simple definition we're going to work with. It means sexual expression outside of the covenant of marriage. That's what porneia is. It doesn't, it's not simply intercourse, but the Bible prohibits any sexual expression of sexuality outside of the bond of marriage. I know it's not cool, but one of the things we're going to do in our EF is we're always going to try to say what Scripture says. We don't think it's a good idea to decide on our terms that Scripture, that God or the Bible is wrong. Therefore, we run it through our grid. We take it on its terms, and it's very clear that the Bible forbids any sexual expression of yourself outside of the bond of marriage. And you, you're allowed to disagree with what the Bible says. You can come to RUF and you can disagree with it. We can talk about it. And I'd love to grab coffee with you. But you need to acknowledge, what I at least want you to acknowledge is this, is what Lauren Winter, the writer of a book called Real Sex, did. When she looked through Scripture, she said, I went through the Bible... And I did all kinds of verbal gymnastics and linguistic tricks for the purpose of complete... Because I wanted to make the Bible say, certainly, certainly, it doesn't mean all sexual expression is exclusive to the bond of marriage. And she read the Bible for that purpose, and she came away admitting, she says, if anybody reads the Bible, honestly, the sexual ethic of Scripture is cleared. All sexual expression, which includes much more than simply intercourse, is intended for the covenant of marriage. And it's kind of natural then to wonder, maybe some of you are thinking, well, then where is that line? And we're going to get to that question later. We'll address it shortly. Um, But what we are going to begin to talk about is why then is that the sexual ethic of Scripture? Why is that His design for creation? Why does He place that boundary around sexuality? And what we need to do is let's at least do this as we enter into that conversation. That's what we'll spend the rest of the night on. Let's be savvy enough to admit that almost every good thing can become a disastrous thing if it's placed in the wrong context. In fact, I actually spent some time, I thought, is there anything that is so universally good that you're allowed to do it in every context? And I came up with one thing. Does anybody know what it is? Breathing. I was like, I think in every single context, breathing is absolutely appropriate. But actually, I just thought about being underwater. Maybe it's not appropriate then. (laughs) So, that just proves... Everything has a context in which it can flourish, and if it's outside of that context, it's disastrous. And these are really simple, but follow me on this principle. Playing is good. Playing in traffic is bad, right? Fire in fireplace is good. Fire in the middle of your living room, bad. Football in a football field, good. Football in a chemistry chemistry lab, bad. Here's my point. Everything we do has an appropriate context. In fact, we couldn't come up with anything. I just defeated my own... Like, I came up with breathing, and then I realized there's even, breathing's even inappropriate in certain contexts. 
everything has boundaries in which it flourishes. So it is not... It's, a, it's an extremely unsophisticated argument against the sexual ethic of the Bible simply to say there should be no boundaries or context. Everyone believes, actually, that everything you do has an appropriate boundary or context. Everything. Okay? So then why? Why this boundary? Why this context? And, and begin to enter into it. Let's talk about the three ways that our sexuality is expressed um, in the narratives right at Stanford today. There's kind of three fundamental sexual relationships that maybe happen uh, in your life. The first one is the hookup, right? You meet at a party. There's a little flirting. There's a mutual recognition that you both want something. Um, you, you make it back to one of the other person's room. A transaction takes place. It feels good, and then you're done, right? You got what you wanted, and you walk away. There's, there's potentially some residual awkward texting or awkward sightings on campus that you have to deal with, but it's a small price to play for the hookup. You got your physical transaction. So that's kind of sex with someone without a relationship. There's also you're feeling lonely, your roommate's gone. A few minutes on the Internet, you find the picture or the video or the story that tantalizes you, and it suits you and you masturbate. And, that, and, and maybe there's some residual feelings of guilt or loneliness, but you can kind of feel the relief that you wanted. So there's, there's sex with someone without a relationship. There's sex with no one. And then also there's you're in a relationship. Someone that you like, you talk, you text, you all have developed uh, uh, a relationship, you anticipate and anticipate the times that you can get away when the roommates are gone and, and you can make out and, you can, and it feels like love. And of course tomorrow the process starts over again. When can we get to more of that? And, and it complicates the relationship a little bit. And you've got to figure out what you're comfortable with and what they're comfortable with. But increasingly the relationship became, becomes about that. And about the sexual encounters, because you're trying to enjoy the relationship physically, but the problem is tomorrow you fight. Or, the, or two days later, you have a fight, and then you don't know if that relationship is going to persist, if it's going to continue. So you give yourself, you give your most exposed physical and intimate self, and yet you have no guarantee of what that person will do with it. Even though you really like each other and are fond of each other. And what I want you all to see is in all three of those contexts, inside of a relationship, outside of a relationship, and even by yourself, all of those are a consumer approach, approach to sexuality. The, and what I want you to see is that sexuality outside of the context of marriage is always a self-oriented enterprise. It's a consumer good. That's how we relate to it. A consumer good is you have an arrangement with a vendor, and as long as they meet your expectations... You continue your arrangement with the vendor, whether it's a hookup, whether it's internet pornography, or it's a boyfriend or girlfriend. But with a vendor relationship, at any given moment, if they fail to meet your expectations, you're within your right to end a consumer relationship, right? My consumer relationship with Starbucks is over, <laughs> you know? The whole of sexuality has been turned in on the self. It's become about you. And I, I recognize, again, you maybe you're in a relationship where you feel in love, but is this not true? You are still retaining the right to abandon the relationship. If you find that your desires are changing, 
if they're waning, if they're frustrated, well, then you follow your desires, right? If there's an available upgrade, you jump for it, right? Sex has become a self-oriented consumer good, and it has a couple of implications. First of all, and it's kind of my point, it's self-interested. The very lack of commitment reveals that it's self-interested. The refusal to commit is this. You're saying, at the end of the day, I love you a ton. I'm not neglecting those feelings and desires aren't there. I love you a ton, but I retain my right to do what's best for me. So give me what I want, and I'm not going to bind myself to you. And if I find this to be too messy, then I'm done. And I understand the objections y'all have. If, if you're in a serious relationship, you're thinking, I really like them, but I can't get married right now. Legitimate. That's legitimate. I've got a lot of things to do in school. I've got some professional pursuits I need to kind of get taken care of. I get it. I get the way you feel. And that's really, all of those feelings are true, but you're actually illustrating the point when you say that. What you're saying is, I like them a lot, but I have more important things to do. Right? You really do like them a lot. You don't like them as much as you like all the things you want to do for yourself. Nobody wants to say that, but that's what that means. When I love them, but I can't get married right now, that means I love them, but not as much as the other stuff I need to do for me. What that means is I'm committed to myself right now. What that means is sex is a consumer good. You look for someone to give you pleasure how and when it's convenient until the other demands of a relationship conflict, conflict with the stuff you want to do for you. You're literally relating to sex the same way you relate to an iPhone, right? It's awesome the first time you get it. Slowly over time, it becomes inconvenient and slow, and then new models come out. And since your approach is, this is about me and me doing what's best for me, guess what you do? You always get the iPhone 5. You never don't go for the upgrade. That's crazy, right? That's kind of funny, but maybe it's too serious. I don't know. (laughs) But you get what I'm saying, even within a committed dating relationship, your fundamental posture is one of selfishness with regard to the relationship and especially to sexuality. And it's only logical that in a culture in which sex has become a consumer good, it didn't become a consumer good in this culture, it's been that way ever since we twisted it, that convention, this, this conventional wisdom that seems like wisdom but is quite foolishness crops up. And it's this, well, it's better to live together beforehand to see if you should get married. People think, well, you know, it's better, what you need to do, maybe your parents have said you this, maybe you thought this, what we need to do before we get married is we need to live together for a while and figure each other out. And what research, I looked at this article that was in April in the New York Times about research done about cohabitation. And research done, uh, research done both at Rutgers and UVA put together this study and they found, did you know divorce rates are higher for people that live together before marriage than people who don't? Now here's what's probably true. People who live together before marriage actually do know each other better. That is true. And yet, the divorce rate's higher. Now, why is that? This is what they found out. How much data you have about the person doesn't, doesn't um, dictate the success of the marriage. That, that's foolish thinking. But the instinct that drives people to test marriage 
through cohabitation, the instinct is this. I need to find out if they can accommodate me. So they cohabitate. And you see, it's actually the instinct that gets you to even think you should cohabitate that reveals that your posture towards a relationship is selfish. I need to find out if I can make this marriage about them accommodating to me. It's not about the union of two people. It's, about, it's not about me serving them. It's about them adjusting to my way of living. And so what happens in cohabitation is you train yourself to relate to the person who will even become your spouse as a consumer. The consumer uh, approach of sexuality, it actually also asks the line question. Where's the line? Because here's the reality. Married people don't ever ask that question. It's never happened in the history of any marriage ever where uh, a husband and wife have gone to their pastor or friend and been like, where's the line for us physically? You know? But dating people always ask for the line. Now, why is that? They're still asking... How much can I get from this before I experience existential guilt? That's what that question is. How long can I make out? How far can I go? What can I touch? And the reality is the question, this is what that question really is. That question really is, how aroused can I get? That's what it is. How much can I get out of this before I experience or have to worry about dealing with some guilt? Okay, that's the approach of a consumer. Because this is what happened when married people get aroused. We're getting like NC-17 here tonight, right? When married people get aroused, they have sex. That's what married people do when they get aroused. Because that's what arousal is for. And it's not for anything else. That's what foreplay is for. It's to get you into bed and having sex. Married people don't make out on the couch of their sorority house for like three hours. <laughs> What's happening, (laughs) escalators are made to go up. And what y'all want to do is y'all want to think, I'm going to hang out on the bottom court of the escalator. I'm going to start going up, and I'm going to walk down. I'm just going to stay in this one spot. I don't want to go all the way up there, because up there is really guilty, but here's just mildly guilty. So I'm going to hang out right here, right? Arousal is for orgasm. That's what it's for, is to lead to that. And when you ask the question, where's the line, what you're asking is, how aroused am I trying to get, what that really, or am I allowed to get, and what that really reveals is, you're still approaching the relationship as a consumer. How much can I get out of this? You can ask me privately, what's the line, because it's something you're talking about and, and struggling with and everything, but I'm not going to tell you what the, I'm going to tell you the line the Bible gives, which is, all sexuality is for marriage, but then we're going to talk about totally different stuff, because it's a totally different conversation that needs to take place when you're asking that question. Sex outside of marriage fundamentally is a lie. And the reason why is because what you're saying with your body is not true. Because sex with your body is saying, I am exclusively, wholly, intimately, and vulnerably yours. But with the other parts of your relationship, you're saying, but I'm really not. It's really about me. And I reserve the right to get out of this. It's self-interested. It's addicting. Proverbs 5.22 talks about the iniquities of the wicked man in snare. Trapping. And he's held fast in the cords of his sin. Jesus denounces sexual sin in Matthew 5. And he goes on to say, 
It's not just sleeping with someone who's not your spouse. It's not just sexual immorality with someone that you're not married to, but even coveting. He says, looking on a woman with lustful intent, and the word he uses is the word for covet or being greedy for sex. And your heart is also sin. Now, here's what he's not saying. When you read all of Scripture, you cannot come to the conclusion that the Bible thinks sexual desire is wrong. There are places in Scripture that are very graphic in their physical description of a husband anticipating a wife's body and God calling the husband to, de- to delight in very graphic physical terms certain aspects of her woman's body that would make you think, like, I can't read this Bible to my children, you know? <laughs> the Bible is very much pro-sexual desire. What he's talking about there is this word that is used for covetousness or greediness, and it's simply this. He's saying addiction and greed are wrong, that addiction and coveting and greed are what arise when we see something And we see that something and we say, I have to have that to be happy. I have to have that to complete myself. Addiction and greed are the result, they're essentially the result of asking something that's good, intended by God to be good, like money, like sex, like romance, like friends, like houses, like success. Asking that good thing to be your ultimate thing. And addiction is the unending cycle of needing it more and more because you keep hoping it's going to complete you And finding your life in it, but it never really happens or it never really comes together. So outside of marriage, it's it's selfish, it's addicting, and it's also numbing. And this is really the most disturbing aspect of it. Proverbs 6.32, he who commits adultery lacks sense and destroys himself. And maybe some of you, you you come in here and your posture has been, listen, I've been sexually active for a while. And, and you're making a big deal out of this, and it's really not a big deal. I enjoy it. I have a lot of fun. It feels good. And it's really like, dude, you're making this huge, and it's really nothing. Like, relax. That sentiment proves the point. Because sin hardens our heart. Because everybody's first sexual encounter is full of power. It's electric. But you're exactly right. The more and more you connect and tear away and connect and tear away and connect and tear away, the more damage you do to your ability to connect. So your sentiment's actually proving that point. If you've overused Velcro, it loses its stickiness, doesn't it? Because you've connected and torn it and connected it and torn it and you've damaged your ability to connect. So yeah, What you're saying absolutely makes sense. I actually don't, I believe exactly what you're feeling, which is, I've done it so much, it's really not that big a deal. Yeah, that's the point. When you've done it so much with so many different people, it ceases to become a big deal. I want it to be a big deal. I love it being a big deal between me and Elizabeth. This is what Naomi Wolf, feminist, said. The onslaught of porn is responsible for deadening the male libido in relationship to real women, leading men and leading men to see fewer and fewer women as porn-worthy. Far from having to fend off porn-crazed young men, young women are worrying that as mere flesh and blood, they can scarcely get, let alone hold, these men's attention. Uh, again, the book, uh, the academic study, uh, Premarital Sex in America, at the end they had several charts, and they examined the correlation between emotional health and the number of partners and the frequency of sexual encounters. 
And what they found is there's a perfect correlation between emotional health going down as frequency and sexual partners go up. It, it, it's empirically shown in the book. Um, one, of, one of the most chilling, beautiful songs from the Avid Brothers that y'all should listen to uh, is called The Tin Man. And, and I just love these lyrics. I could not um, read it. It says, I used to fill the sky around with happiness and joy. I had news to give the wind to keep my sails and heart employed. I felt people move around me. I even felt loneliness and shame. Back then, every day was different, and now every moment is the same. Listen to this line. This is, I miss it. I miss it. Oh, I miss the feeling of feeling. We connect and tear and connect and tear and connect and tear. We start to lose the ability to feel. We get numb. And Jesus wants great sex for his creation. And sex outside of the bond of marriage has turned into a consumer good that's taking away our humanity. It's the difference between fresh water and salt water. They're so similar. But one tiny detail radically changes them and what they do to you. To somebody thirsty or dying of thirst who has strong desire, right? Looks at both of them, they're basically the same. They initially even feel very similar, right? When it goes down the first time. I have a friend whose parents came over here from Cuba on one of these boats that's very overloaded and underprepared. And she said that on several occasions, the desire to quench thirst overwhelms and gets too strong and salt water's right there. And there are people who don't make the trip because they can't resist the salt water anymore. And when the first, when, when the first drop hits your tongue... It feels like it's quenching you. And it feels like it's life-giving water. But what it does over time is it does the opposite. It leaches moisture from your body. And it kills you. It actually pulls life away from you. And so people find themselves drinking more and more and more and needing more and more and more. And the very thing they're drinking is the thing that's taking away their life. But it feels like it's life-giving. Right? Sexuality, as it's designed by God, has an integrity to it that I want y'all to begin to capture and to imagine. This is Keller's language uh, as I kind of looked at the way he talked about it, and I love it. Um, By integrity, he means a purposeful and interconnectedness or an integration of all the other aspects of your relationship. God's law about sex is not arbitrary. It's absolutely filled with purpose. Because sex wasn't intended to, be, uh, intended to be a consumer good. It was intended to be a covenant good. A physical act of union that actually illustrates and confirms and nourishes and enriches and grows all the other aspects of covenantal union. And what we said last week is covenantal union is much more than simply a desire. Desires come and go. They're not... They're not right or wrong, but we need to recognize they come and go. Covenantal union, covenantal bond of marriage is much more than desire. And what's been really unhelpful in our culture has been our tendency to call strong desires, to call them love. But the kind of love that the Bible envisions in covenant is deeper and it's sweeter than simply strong desire. Strong desire with no commitment, it does exist. It says, I love you, I love you, I love you, but I reserve the right. To leave you if the desire fades or if it becomes too difficult. Covenant bond says, I am bound for the times when I do love you and I'm excited, and I'm bound to you when I cannot stand you. 
And you see, ultimately, the first expression, right? I love you, I love you, I love you, but I'm not bound to you, has at its root a built-in fundamental protection of selfishness. But I'm going to protect my right to be selfish. The second one, the covenantal bond, it gives up all your rights to protect and look out for yourself. It's scary. You should think about that. The covenant bond is saying, I give up all my rights to protect myself. I give my rights to self even at the times when I want to reassert those rights. Even when I don't feel this relationship anymore, I have given up my personal rights to you. One of these is love. And one of these is play-acting love. And I know that in certain relationships, you feel that you're in love and you feel that you're committed. And we spoke about this a little bit last week, so I won't belabor it. The question is, why then are you not willing to bind yourself? Because you're reserving the right to be selfish. At the end of the day, you say, I have all this desire for you, but underneath all that, I still retain my right to leave. And you might be thinking, no, even in my physical relationship, I'm really self-giving. That's how into him, that's how into her I really am. To which the question remains, well, then why are you retaining the right to leave? Because if you're retaining the right to leave, you're actually withholding the most important part. Sex is not for consumption. It's for covenant. And physically resembles the relational security that we talked about last week. It's the physical. The physical here is all of me. Here I am in my most physically vulnerable and exposed place. And I give all of this to you. And covenant says, I will bind myself to you. Dating and hooking up says, I will enjoy you for myself. But you can't count on me to appreciate you tomorrow. Listen, you're not made to expose yourself as a calculated risk that maybe they'll see all of me and stick with me. It's not intended to be a calculated risk. And it tears at our souls when we enter into that way. You are, you are made to be exposed completely in the safety, not of someone still shopping for other bodies and souls, but someone who will never again look for another body and soul to connect to. This is what Keller says. A consumer relationship says, you adjust to me or I'm out of here. A covenant relationship says, I adjust to you because I'm bound to you. Because I set my needs aside for the sake of the relationship, I adjust because I'm actually more committed to the relationship that I am to my own needs now. Here's what that does. That makes sex amazing. It makes covenant love richer and more powerful, not more unromantic. Our tendency is to think, that sounds unromantic. Right? Because a covenant bond says, I'm going to stick around when the feelings and the desires fluctuate. And what happens is, if you bind yourself to someone saying, I'm staying even if the feelings and desires leave, you actually create a deeper, richer love. That's what happens. And here's an example of the way that happens. If any of y'all known anybody that's fought in combat, I know several war veterans who've actually been in combat and been shy. There's no context in which you want to leave more than being shot at. If you talk to somebody who's been in these contexts, in which there's, a, there's no stronger desire to abandon people than in combat. And yet what these guys have done is while they're being shot at, they've stayed. 
And if you've spent time or gotten to know anybody who's been in combat, you realize the friendship they have with the people they sat by while they were shot at is incomprehensible. That we actually, the rest of us will never experience that kind of friendship. My grandfather's 90 years old. He still talks about the men who were in his B-17 70 years ago who aren't even alive today. He can't... I love my grandfather. He loves his grandchildren. He can't name all of his grandchildren, right? He knows the men that when all the desires were there, the most compelling desire to leave and to abandon were there, they stayed. That formed a friendship that I'm not sure any of us will ever really understand. You see, actually what happens is when you bind yourself to someone even in spite of your feelings, you actually build a deeper, more profound kind of love and companionship. Covenant is saying, I eliminate all my other options to leave you. I eliminate all of them. Even if I want to. I'm not simply saying it. I'm actually putting things around me to keep me from doing it. And what sex does in that context is it goes from becoming a taking to a giving. Paul's language in chapter 7, is so, it's amazing. The wife doesn't have authority over her own body. Whose is the wife's body? It's her husband's now. Her body is for giving to her husband, not for taking something from her husband. And likewise, the husband doesn't have authority over his body. Whose is his body now? It's actually his wife's. His wife's. Don't deprive one another. The Bible actually says the only time you should stop having sex in marriage is to pray some. I mean, that's kind of awesome. There are sometimes advantages to taking the Bible literally, right? <clears throat> sex within the covenant is intended to be self-giving, seeking their pleasure, seeking their delight. Uh, one theologian said this, sexual love is not simply an act of self-fulfillment. Uh, it actually directs us away from ourselves toward the loved one and also actually toward the next generation. And what that does is, is it feeds and nourishes your marriage and your relationship. When we say sex has integrity, what that means is it, it is intended to be attached to all the other forms of service and self-denial and self-giving that form a biblical understanding of marriage. I am called to emotionally serve Elizabeth, to spiritually serve Elizabeth, to socially serve Elizabeth and to sexually serve Elizabeth. And when you retain that integrity of sex, when you keep all of those purposes together within the covenant bond, sexuality goes from something that's life-taking and numbing and self-centered something that's, to something that's wholly different. might feel a little bit the same or seem a little the same on the surf, surface, but it's wholly different because sex is the sacrament of marriage. A sacrament is a, is a physical sign of a spiritual reality. Sex inside of a covenant is the self-giving physicality that is a sign connected to self-giving, to self-giving spiritually and emotionally and socially and even financially. And in that way, instead of dehumanizing us like it does outside of marriage, it actually has the capacity to restore our humanity. I'll close. We're going to talk more about this next week. We're going to talk about especially dealing with sexual brokenness. And I know that there are three, we're all in three places with regard to this. Um, some of us are stuck in the past, maybe many of us. Uh, tonight maybe evoked regret, maybe guilt about your choices in the past, maybe even pain about things that have done to you. Uh, some of us are also stuck in the present, probably many of us, whether it's in a relationship or whether it's in sexual addiction. And then I know also a lot of us are scared of the future. 
because of the things that we've done, because have, have we damaged our ability to connect? Do I have hope for satisfying and sweet union? You know, there's the past and the present and the future that's all kind of haunting and threatening all of us. And real brief points of application, two to close. And the first one is, what do we do about the present? Here's what you do about the present. Apply wisdom. Jesus, the Bible gives us wisdom. Proverbs 5.8 says this, Keep your way far from her. Talking about the adulteress, the ability to be seduced. Do not go near to the door of her house. See, Proverbs recognizes and the Bible recognizes that sexual morality is very appealing. In fact, it's probably too appealing. In fact, it is too appealing for all of us. And Paul actually says here, flee sexual immorality. Because it's just it's stronger than we are. The appeal of it. But he uses the word flee. And, and Solomon says, keep your way far from her. It's a very strong admonition. And what they're saying is this. Begin to apply wisdom. And wisdom is not learning how to get into a place where you have to say no. It's learning how to never even get in that place where you have to fight the fight. Because we're too weak for that fight. Apply wisdom. That's what to do in the present. But secondly, dealing with your past and also dealing with our future hope. Bring your broken sexuality to Jesus. Some of us are hiding addictions on our own and we're fighting them. Some of us are hiding pain done to us from the past. Some of us are trying to justify our behavior that we want to continue. Some of us are afraid that we'll never be loved. So we don't admit that we long for union. And instead of working hard to hide it, or to justify it, or to clean yourself, or to pacify your heart. Come to Jesus with the mess that you are. Ezekiel, these passages, it's this beautiful passage in Ezekiel 16 where God describes His church as a faithless bride. I'm not going to read them all. It's graphic in some places, but it's beautiful because it's where God says, listen, you're you're dirt. It can't disparage my love for you. You still haven't understood covenant yet. Because you see, the covenant of marriage is just a looking glass pointing us to the covenant of God. He's saying, you still don't understand, I bound myself to you. And no matter what, what's in your past, I redeem your future. There's a, a close with this illustration. You all might be familiar with a preacher named Matt Chandler. And he has a beautiful relationship of, uh, or story about how Jesus relates to sexually broken people, because that's all of us. And he talks about uh, this time that he went to a church, this is before he was a minister of the gospel, and he brought a friend of his who was a woman who was really struggling with sexual guilt, was really beginning really, was really beginning to buy a scripture on this, and she just she had a lot of sexual brokenness in her own life. And the preacher got up, and as he began his sermon, he was going to talk about sex. Um, he had a rose. And he held the rose and he said, I want you all to enjoy this rose as I preach tonight. And he handed it, this is an auditorium of 500 people. Handed it the front row and he said, I want you all to pass it around and everybody just encountered this rose. And he proceeded to preach this sermon that was just a fear-mongering sermon on sexuality. All the diseases and the disgust of the people who are sexually immoral um, and, and, and just shaming anybody who came in with sexual brokenness. And as he wrapped up and he got to his conclusion... Matt Chandler said, he called out and he said, where is my rose? I want to see my rose as we finish. And someone brought the rose up and it had been around four to five hundred different people. And at this point, the petals were brown. Many of them had fallen off. The stem was broken. And it was a disaster. 
And he holds it up and he says, for the sexually immoral, this is you. And who wants a rose like this? And Matt Chandler shouted, Jesus wants that rose. Jesus wants the rose. Do you get the picture of his love for his people? You haven't looked at more porn than he can forgive. You haven't done too much. You haven't gone too far. You haven't been with too many. You haven't run too far in your mind and your fantasies to outlast the grace of God. Jesus wants the rose. His love is a love that runs after a prostitute and cleans her. That's what he describes in Ezekiel 16. He says, my church is like a prostitute that I chase down. Even when she's actively run away from me and I clean her. That's my love. I know we all want to know how to begin to get a handle on these things. And what, you, what I want you to begin to see is the ability to turn off the pornography or the ability to turn around is not an effort problem. That's what we all think it is. It's an effort problem. I need to put... Okay, if it was an effort problem, people at Stanford wouldn't have a problem with it because y'all put forth more effort for everything than anybody I know, right? But it's not an effort problem. That's why effort hasn't worked. It's actually a love problem. It's not that you haven't tried hard enough. It's that you don't love Jesus or sex enough. And the path to loving Jesus is First John. We love because He first loved us. The power to restore sexuality is actually in reveling in His goodness towards you. And it's when we rest in that reality that Jesus wants the rose. And that a love for him really blossoms in response. See, the whole time we're talking tonight, when we're talking about covenant and sex, we're actually talking about Jesus and his bride. And if you're in Jesus, you need to know he has bound himself to you. All of himself. And he cleans you and you're pure. And if you're not in Jesus, if you if you haven't come to him yet, if you're interested in being clean, if you're interested in great sex, right? The call really is to come to him. Let him bind himself to you. Let him clean you. Let him see all of you and wash you and say to you, you're mine. That's the key to good sex. really is. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. and We thank you that it confronts us. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would work in our heart. We would find ourselves compelled and even drawn to you when we find that there's healing and there's sweetness and there's goodness in the way you've made us. In your name we pray. Amen.